Good morning, guys. Good to see you. I love to see your faces. Um, does anybody else have a hard time singing that song? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a hard time singing that song. Uh, it's, it, it's hard to get through it uh, without uh, it, it doing the job that I need it to, right? Uh, I just tore this page in my Bible by accident just now. This is my kind of new Bible. I just tore a page. You know what, though? Um, I'm so thankful that the words of God are everlasting. And so let's read them. Let's read them in observation of the fact that God wrote them. You know, not everyone believes that God wrote the Bible. Yeah? Um, no, one, no one else could have written this book. The complexity of it alone, uh, not to mention its prophetic nature, if anyone is willing to just simply look at it, cannot deny the fact that it's a, it's a heavenly and it's a divine book. And so as we read it this morning, as, as Jeanette reads it for us this morning, we are going, we're going to observe that fact, okay? We're in Romans chapter 7. We're going to read the passage of review from last week. Okay, so we're going to read Romans 7, 13 through 25. Give me a second. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin might, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly exceeding sinful. But we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no, no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much again um, that we're gathered here in your name and that you're here with us in in our midst. Lord, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we don't know, I don't know what I would do without your word, Lord. It's life to us. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for this passage in Romans 7, Lord, because we all identify with this struggle, Lord. It's the war that we're in constantly and daily, Lord, and um, we would be hopeless except for your word, Lord, and except for just the grace and the hope that you give us in the word, Lord. Um, it's by you that we're going to win this war, Lord, yes. that we battle every day. And I just pray that today, 
your spirit will be here with us, Lord, that we will hear your words and that you will give us the victory, Lord, in your name and through your word and through our fellowship together, Lord, through your spirit, that just use this time, Lord, to glorify yourself and to give us victory, Lord, in this struggle. And Father, we just pray in Jesus' name. All right, let's get into it. So, up to this point, there's been a lot of conversation about the law, right? And we've seen this word showing up a lot. And, and so, let's kind, of, let's kind of backtrack just for a second so we can get to where we should be at. At one time, holiness and spirituality was contingent on religious duty, Okay? God created a system uh, for the Jewish people for them to find, uh, to find faith in Him through the obedience to the law. And He created, he created the law with the, with the intention that it would keep His people within boundaries and keep them with some, par- some parameters in terms of how to live their life. And He did this uh, because of what Galatians chapter 3, verse 19 says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. Because people were breaking the commands. They didn't know the heart of God. They didn't understand God. Okay? And, and so they were, they were finding themselves transgressing the things that God would have them to do and to be. And so he created and developed the law that they might have something to obey. Alright? And, and we, we know a lot, a lot about the law. Even as Gentiles, we know the law because we have the Old Testament. We can go back and we can see the law. Right? But verse... Uh, uh, chapter 3 verse 19 of Galatians also says that the law is only intended to be there till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. In other words, the law was only intended to exist until the one that could destroy the law came. Until the one that could bestow upon us grace and forgiveness came. Until the one the extended grace as a gift to us came into the world. We were bound to the law to do the things of the law. And even as Gentiles, it doesn't matter where you come from or what your background is, many of us struggle with this idea. All the major religions of the world, except for biblical Christianity, face the same issue. And the issue is this. The only way to gain God's favor, this is the assumption, the only way to gain God's favor, favor is to obey laws. Is, is, to, is to God, for God to give us something to obey. And if we follow that script, we'll be good. And the beauty of what I believe is that Jesus Christ himself died and rose again to set me free from having to be perfect because he was perfect for me. The, 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 the expectations that I set for myself, most of which are false expectations, If I don't meet those expectations, I don't have to destroy myself. I don't have to tear myself down. I don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to abuse myself. Because the truth is, at the end of the day, I know that God sent Jesus Christ to save me from my sins so that I wouldn't have to feel that way, so that I would be empowered to do the work and the will of God. And that's the beauty of what's happened here. You know, when I was a kid, I used to play this game uh, called Mega Man X. Now, if you're older, like I've got a few people that are about my age, okay? That are familiar with this video game, Mega Man X, okay? Now, it was for Super Nintendo. I, you, some of you don't even know what a Super Nintendo looks like, okay? It was a gray console. 
with very 90s-esque purple blue uh, trim work on it. Had two major levers. There was still the blowing into the cartridge occasionally, as need be. Yes. Okay. Now, this game, Mega Man X, I really struggled with it. There was other really hard games that I'd beaten. Games like um, uh, Super Metroid, which is the greatest video game of all time. Okay. I'd beaten games like that, but this game, Mega Man X, was just always too hard. I mean, every time I played it, I would beat like the first four bosses, and then I'd be like suspended there. I couldn't get any further. Okay. I couldn't do it. My fingers didn't work the right way. I don't know what it was, right? The eye-hand coordination wasn't there. Maybe the intellect, maybe there was a move that I wasn't making. So you know what I did? I cheated. I, I, I cheated. There used to be these books that you could purchase. They were that Nintendo produced. They came out quarterly. And inside of them were the cheat codes for the video games. So you could have like extra rocket packs and like extra lives and all these different things that would help you, okay, in your quest to conquer the game. Now let me ex- explain this to you. Jesus Christ is the ultimate cheat code. <laughs> no, I'm being for real. I'm being for real. Jesus Christ is the ultimate cheat code. How wonderful is it that God that created the natural world and created systems in place a, a world where there is, there is consequences for actions. Cause and effect all around us. And, and, and yet, even though we know as human beings this idea of cause and effect, the one thing that we can't stop doing is sin. We can't stop sinning. And so what we do is we imagine God in the sky with these, this balance beam, and, and, and we've got all these sins, and we've got all this goodness, and we can't figure out, and we know, we know, we know. If we knew our hearts, we'd know that the, the scale and the weight is way tipped, in our, not in our favor. And yet God, because he knew this, and because he loved us, and because he desires for us to know him, and be intimate with him, and to have access to him, and to have acceptance in him, he sent us the ultimate cheat. Jesus Christ came into this world to break the system. He broke the system. Now I have direct access to God through Jesus Christ for eternity because of what he's done. It has nothing to do with me. Because of what he's done for me is why I want to obey him. Sir, would, I, would you give me the grace and the strength to obey you because of what you've done for me? Now, in Romans chapter 7, what we face is Paul acknowledging all of these truths and saying to himself, even though God has done this for me, even though I know in my mind and in my heart that he has set me free from sin, I still find myself struggling daily with the ability to obey. This is the Apostle Paul that we're talking about, okay? He's confessing to us in Romans chapter 7 that he finds it very difficult on a daily basis to obey God in every way. And then he finds himself doing things that he knows in his heart are wicked. And by the end of chapter 7, it's a very futile situation. He says to himself, I don't know what to do, oh wretched man that I am. When I look at myself, even though I know I'm forgiven, I still find myself falling into the traps of temptations and difficulties that I've that I faced as even a lost man. Can anyone recognize that is true in their life? 
And so we find ourselves with the answer in Romans chapter 8. And what we're going to find is that the answer resides in the fact that God didn't just send Jesus Christ to set us free from the law and from the law of sin. But he sent us the Holy Spirit to do the work of mortifying the flesh. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let's read Romans chapter 8. And then let's pray. Uh, We'll look at verse 1. We'll read through verse 4 real quick. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the, the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. And God, we just pray that you would speak to us through Romans chapter 8. You've given us, you've given us the power. Lord, we in our flesh, we have no ability to obey you the way that we should. We have, we have no ability to be righteous in and of ourselves. But God, you've given us the power to live righteously, to abandon carnality, to pursue you, and to pursue your mission. You've given us that power, and you've built it into us. But yet, Lord, we still find ourselves, even with the answer, not knowing how to leverage your spirit. We abuse your spirit daily. We don't acknowledge it. We don't know what to do with it. We don't know what it means to us. So God, forgive us of that, and give us the ability to rely on your spirit, and allow the Spirit to function the way that it should in our lives, that we might obey you, God. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. So in Romans chapter 7, the focus is weakness, is it not? The, if you look at the passage, and if you can bring it up, it's the next, I think it's the, is it the previous slide or the next slide? I'm not sure. I didn't really know how I was going to do my intro today. I winged it. Can you go back one, maybe? Yeah, you're Okay. Notice uh, when it comes up, how many times the word, just in the small passage that I chose, the word I and me and my are used. You guys guys recognize how often there in that passage the word I and me and my? Because you know what? In our flesh, there's no way we have the ability to obey God. We just don't. And Paul's acknowledging that. I want to do this, but I can't. I want to be this type of person, but it's not in me. I desire to do the will of God. But I don't have the strength. And this is the conversation that he's having with himself. And so we find ourselves in the the trap of of believing that it has something to do with what we can do, what we have the ability to do. And what Romans 8 is going to teach us is that if we can learn how to die to our flesh and live for the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to acknowledge and live in the fact that Jesus himself, God the Father, sent his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, then we can be set free from the daily struggle of sin. Verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. So first we need to establish this. This is important. First we need to establish that as Christians, we are inhabited by both fleshly desires... And godly desires. And the two wage war on a daily basis. According to what we have learned so far, we recognize that we can mind God. Paul's told us that much. We have the ability to mind God or obey. But we can obey either the flesh or the spirit. It's up to us. 
we get to decide. We get to decide what it is that we're going to yield to. Verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity, meaning in opposition to God, against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So someone who is carnally minded is letting their flesh rule them. Okay, when you see that word carnal, right, you can think of carnality, you can think of carnage, you can think of fleshliness. Carnal is a word, another word for flesh. To be fleshly minded is death. And someone who's fleshly minded is ruled by their old nature. Someone who's spiritually minded is a saved person, set free from their sin, who is living according to the reality of the spirit, their spiritual position, what they know to be true inside them. And the Bible, see, the Bible is full of men who struggled with this, this duality, this torn nature. Men that were torn between what they knew that they should do, what they should do, and what they, should, they did, what they did, the, the actuality of what they were doing. Abraham knew that God had a plan to give, him, uh, give Sarah and him a child. Did he not? Right? We can, we can read about that. And, and what we recognize in that story is that because Abraham feared God not doing what he promised, Abraham circumvented God and made his own way. In other words, he chose to obey the flesh rather than what God was telling him. That's a, that's a perfect example. And so there was all kinds of consequence that came with disobeying the Lord. But see, the man, we, we read about Abraham. And Abraham was uh, above most people in Scripture obedient to God. You know, that's the most interesting thing about the story is that over and over and over again, we see Abraham, when God would give him a message or tell him something, he would just, even when he didn't know the outcome, he would just obey. But as it concerned this issue, it required a lot of patience for Abraham because even though God had promised this thing to him, it took years and years before God was going to actualize it. Right? And so what Abraham did is he struggled with his anxiety and, he str- and the root here, the root sin here, is anxiety and fear that God's not going to do what he said. And so he goes around God and he makes his own way. Do any of us in here struggle with anxiety and fear? Okay, well, another example. Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel, chapter 15, he was asked to destroy the Amalekites. He was sent to go and destroy the Amalekites. Every single, every single one of them. They were wicked people. We're not going to get into the details of the story. Okay, but God saw it fit for the Amalekites to be destroyed. Now, now Saul goes in and they defeat the Amalekites, but he holds back anything that he finds will be profit to him. Right? Do you guys remember this story in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15? And so he keeps back all the things that will bring wealth to him. You know, he, he keeps the, the, the livestock and he holds on to some of the kings and the leaders and he, and he, and he holds things back because he's torn. He knows what he should do. You can see, you can see at times in 1 Samuel how torn King Saul is. He, he wants to do what's right, but yet he keeps letting in him his pet sin of lust and power to rule over him. He keeps finding himself doing the things that he knows that he should not do, just like Paul. Just like Paul. He finds himself obeying the lusts of his flesh, the pride of life. His desire for authority, for power. And he finds himself yielding to that. 
Can anyone acknowledge that they, that they desire authority? And then maybe your pet sin too is authority. And, and the, the ways that you find yourself disobeying God is because you're trying to hedge your way towards power and money and wealth and position at your job, at your school. And you find yourself, and this is one that people don't want to admit to because it, it's, it requires saying that I'm a proud person. Okay? But in your heart right now, do you recognize that you're doing things that compromise God's will for you because you want to, to get yourself into a position that seems comparable to what you want? To what you desire? I mean, that was King Saul's issue. What about Jonah? Jonah asked to de- was asked to deliver a message to the Ninevites. To go and to tell them that God was coming. This is what God asked him to do as a prophet. He asked him to go and to tell the Ninevites that God was going to destroy them. And what did he do? He made his own way. He found himself going to Tarshish. And you know what? The reason for him going was because his pet sin was prejudice. His pet sin was prejudice. He didn't want to go. He didn't want to obey God. He didn't want to do what God asked him to do because he was prejudiced. Now listen to me. We could go on and on and on in Scripture and find examples over and over again of people who knew what they were supposed to do, but found themselves doing the exact opposite thing. I don't think any of these men wanted to be awful human beings. I don't think think that's what they wanted. In fact, their stories, if you look closely, like if you look at the end of Jonah, I mean, Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, right? The book is only self-condemning. The book ends with him sad, sitting on a hill by himself, lonely, crying, about the most stupid thing I've ever read about. I mean, it's just stupid. And it's self-deprecating. And so he finds himself in this position where he acknowledges that he doesn't even know what to do with himself. These men didn't want to be awful. They just found themselves being awful. Why does it seem that sin controls us? Why does it seem that way? You know, in Kaya, over the last few weeks and months, I've spoken to a lot of you um, about things that you're struggling with. Sins that you know that they just keep creeping back in. Things that you thought maybe you had defeated at one point. Things that, that, that sin issues that keep finding, that they're lurking in the shadows like we talked about last week, and they come and they rear their ugly head up, and you find yourself submitting to those things over and over again. And this flaw begins to rule you. And your inclination, when it begins to rule over, your inclination is to retreat and to hide. Chapter 8 is intended to set you free from the control of that sin. So this chapter is going to unlock for us. It's got the key. It holds the key for us about what to do as it concerns the sins that continue to rear their head. Listen, you may never be delivered from temptation. Listen to me very carefully. You may never be delivered completely from temptation. But listen to me. God doesn't ever condemn temptation. God condemns disobedience. And what God wants for you is that regardless of the temptation, regardless of the sin issue that you struggle with personally, God has given you the keys to obey. He's given you the ability to do exactly what he asked you to do. But yet we fear our sin so greatly that we find ourselves relying on our flesh. 
to make a way out. You know, it's like a small child uh, who sticks their finger into a, a light socket. Can you imagine that? A lot of people, like, I don't know, for some reason in the 90s, that seemed to be more common. I'm pretty sure um, every one of my siblings at some point stuck their finger in a, in a light socket and got shocked. I bet you did it multiple times. I bet it took you a, time, a while before you realized that that was not, he- not healthy. I'm just going to guess. <laughs> but you know what? Just picture this for me. A child sticks their finger in a light socket and they get shocked. And what happens to this child? Let's imagine this child, this fictitious, uh, fictitious child. He finds himself going and hiding in the house because he believes that the house itself is out to get him. And instead of drawing the right conclusion about that sin, he finds himself cowering in his bedroom underneath the sheets, believing that if he comes out, he's going to find himself facing those consequences, and there's no way that he can avoid sticking his finger back into that light socket. (laughs) This is the way that we live, is it not? A lot of times we're so imprisoned to our sin that we we go and we retreat and hide away, and we think that that's the solution to our sin problem. When what God's asking us to do is lean in and learn that sin is sin and you have power power over it. You don't have to obey your sinful sinful inclinations. You don't have to stick your finger in that light socket again. It doesn't rule you. It doesn't own you. Now listen, here's the difference between you and Saul and, and, and Abraham and Jonah. The difference is you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And what they didn't have the power to do, you do have the power to live and to be. You've got something that they didn't have. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over you unless you yield to it. (coughs) Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And what we need to recognize here as we continue to pursue chapter 8 is that if we are people of Uh, that believe in our flesh and believe that we can do good things and we believe that we can be righteous and we can make our own way, we're going to find ourselves continuing to sin, continuing to struggle with bitterness. Right? Negativity. (coughs) Sexual sin. Looking at things that we shouldn't look at. Struggling with saying things that we we know we ought not say. Struggling to have a good testimony at work because, well, we're selfish. We're going to keep finding ourselves there because you have no power to do what's right. We have to begin with denying our flesh. One shouldn't be afraid of sin or its consequences, particularly as they learn how to lose confidence in their flesh and live after the Spirit. And so let's figure out how to do that. Verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you know that? Do you know that lost people can't please God? There's nothing that they can do to please God. People of the flesh, of the flesh, people who don't know Jesus Christ and their Savior as their Savior and who haven't been set free from sin, there's nothing that they can do to please God. Not until they first come to, uh, to the place where they're willing to obey God in spirit and truth for the very first time. Not until they're willing to yield for the first time. God can't hear them. So, so notice the phrasing here. So then they, uh, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Previously, we read about, how, uh, about uh, being after the flesh. Did you see the difference in the phrase there? There's a difference there. Someone who's after the flesh, that could be a Christian that's pursuing sin, who's yielding to sin. In this case, we're talking about someone who's lost in their sin. They're in the flesh. 
So be careful how, how you read the Bible. You need to recognize how, how God's speaking. Um, so someone who's in the flesh is lost. Someone who's after the flesh is any person who is living as a sinner, whether they're saved or not. Okay? Now, someone who is in the flesh is condemned to eternal separation for God, from God. And it is impossible for that type of person to please God. But let's continue reading. Verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh. Okay, so we recognize that there's a difference between you and the lost world. Done. You, as a believer, someone who's come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ, you are different. You're not in the flesh anymore, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Okay, so a Christian is someone who's indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Okay, so the next conclusion is, if the Spirit dwells inside of you, the body of sin itself, the rule of sin, the law of sin, is dead in you. Now, we talked about this last week. You can be a spiritual person and still have inclinations towards sin, even though you've been set free from it. But the Spirit, here's this is important, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. This word in here denotes a position of rest. Okay? Dwelling in. The word in here means that you're a person who lives within Christ Jesus. And he in you. 1 John 4.15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Now we underestimate this big time. We often forget that the moment we accepted Jesus Christ as, uh, as our Lord and Savior, that he inhabited us to give us power. Look closely at, at verse 10. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Look, this is what we're saying. If the, if the spirit of God raised Christ from the dead, if that's the power of that spirit and it dwells in you, then can sin rule over you? Can, do you does, can, does the spirit not have power over sin? It can raise Christ from the dead, but it, it can't defeat the, your pet sins, your selfishness, your pride, your cynicism. The dark things that you carry around in your heart, the things that you struggle with, the Spirit of God that that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the resurrection Spirit, cannot somehow deliver you from the oppression of your sins? Oh, ye of little faith. Here's our key point. If the Holy Spirit has power over death, it certainly has power over your sin. We've got to acknowledge that as truth. It has to be a key point here. It has to be. If God's Spirit is that type of Spirit, I mean, listen, we, don't, we can read about the Holy Spirit in Genesis. The Spirit of God moving about in the universe, like declaring the glory of God the Father, moving about. I mean, this is a, this is a, a being that's existed before time was created. This is a part of the Godhead, the triune God, that functions as power over death. And it lives inside anyone who declares Jesus Christ as their Savior. And yet, we think that, that we don't have the ability to live in victory? 
Sometimes I think we forget how to read our Bible. We get so interested in the doctrine of things. We get so interested in the inspiration of things that we don't reckon the full power and the authority of what we're reading. I mean, this is, this, this is the part of God that gives us the ability to be knit together in the world. I mean, the Holy Spirit is amazing. We're going to read more about it here in a moment. So the implication of the indwelling of the Spirit is power over death and, and, and eternity with Jesus Christ. This means that as long as we are on the earth, we can live in the reality of resurrection. If I know that I'm not dying, what do I fear? Certainly not sin. Certainly not a mistake. Certainly not my imperfections. Certainly not temptations. Now, let's continue reading. Verse 12. And this is where the rubber really hits the road. So you need to pay close attention here. Because this is where some of you are going to find deliverance. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. Are we not? Not to the flesh. To live after the flesh. Right? For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if yet uh, ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. So Paul clarifies here. Because of eternal life, uh, the, the, the eternal life that we've been given, we are indebted to live after the Spirit. We're indebted to that fact. Not to the flesh, but to the Spirit. It's our responsibility, our vocation to live in light of our rea- reality. And Paul gets even more particular here. Look, this is the part we're going to focus on from now to the end. Through the Spirit, we mortify the deeds of the body. Ye shall live. See, here's the power of this whole message. If your deeds resemble... Listen, Christian, here's the question for you. If your deeds resemble the deeds of the world, deeds meaning actions, if your deeds resemble the deeds of the world and they are carnal, then in the power of the Spirit, we need to kill those deeds. That doesn't happen magically. Okay, that's what I want you to understand. Is that this, is, this is very practical. This isn't some sort of magical thing that happens. We have to make a decision to kill sin in the power and the authority of the Spirit as it reveals sin to us. We have to mortify our flesh. This is the command. The command is to mortify the deeds of the body. Mortify means to kill. Why kill it? Why kill it? Why kill sin? I mean, those are drastic words, Brandon. I mean, I, listen, I'm the type of guy who I like the idea of hunting. I like the idea of it. You know? It seems very masculine to go out into the woods and to sit and to shoot and kill a deer and drag it back and to gut it and it seems manly. And listen to me, I've never done it and probably never will. You know why? <laughs> I can't bring myself to kill things. Now, I will kill the occasional bug for my sister. Or my, or for my sister. For my, well, for my sister too, if you want me to. But for my daughter, my daughter has a, a fear of bugs. And I don't know where she got it. Probably from Eva. Because I'm not afraid of bugs. Right? Spiders, no, they're nothing. And, but I've always just, like if I see a spider crawling, I'm like, oh, I don't want to get up. But no, my sister, my, my sister, my, I keep looking at you. My, I always call Clementine Amanda, by the way. And it's weird. I need to get stop doing that. But So Clementine has this fear of bugs. And you know what? I'll kill a bug. Like with the swimmers. I'll kill a bug. I don't care. But I'm not, I'm not into killing. 
You know why? Because it just seems so extreme, doesn't it? <laughs> Killing seems extreme. Killing things? Listen, the command here is to kill deeds. To kill deeds. What are the deeds inside of you that keep rearing their head? And how do we kill it? Galatians 5.24 And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. You know, this guy, uh, John Owens, a long time ago, wrote this book called Mortification of the Flesh. Mortification of the Flesh. And here's a quote from it. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. You know the reason I kill bugs? In my house? It's because my daughter is convinced that they're going to kill her. That they're after her. Okay? We kill the things that threaten us. That's a principle. If someone comes into my house to intrude on my family, I will kill them like the bugs. I will. I'll go into the death. I'll fight them. If they come in and threaten my family, I have, I have to do whatever it takes to protect the things that God has given me to steward. Correct? If there are deeds in your life that are threatening your spiritual walk, and threatening the will of God inside of you, why would you not be swift to kill that thing? And you know, here's the deal. It's an art form. We live in a world today where we struggle with acknowledging sin in the first place. If we can't acknowledge sin, then we don't know the target of our, of, uh, to, uh, to kill. We don't know what to, to, to put the, the... What is it called? Scope. The scope. James, the James Bond game is not a game I played growing up. You know, the scope. This thing. Right? I can't, I don't know where to aim the gun. Right? I don't know what to kill if I don't know what sin is. And we live in a world where we're like, it was before in the past, in Christianity of the past, acknowledging sin and learning to repent of it and kill it was an art form that was, that was valued. Today we wink at sin, don't we? It's not that big of a deal. It's not that big of a deal. It's just this thing. And it doesn't bother me most of the time. Right? It doesn't bother me most of the time. It just occasionally comes in. It drifts in. It's not. You know, I have a garden. I have a couple of gardens. I'm not great with gardens. But on the side of my house is a full, like a large flower bed where I've been planting uh, perennials. Right? Stuff that's going to grow really well uh, even if I don't water it a whole lot. Right? Stuff that's fairly native to Missouri. Because I want it to be pretty. But I don't want it to do much. And you know, I don't know a whole lot about this. This is, a, this is not some, an art form that I've mastered. And so um, at the beginning of this year, at the beginning of spring, stuff starts sprouting up, right? The flowers start coming in, but everything's kind of green. And so it's hard for me to tell the difference between weeds and flowers. I, I, I really don't know. In fact, I've got these little, if you come over to my house, I've got these little orange flags in the year, in the yard, like trying to help me know this is a flower. Anything that's not this is a weed, right? But um, at the beginning of the, of the uh, season this year, all of these weeds started growing in, but I didn't acknowledge them as weeds. I thought, like, holy crap. These flowers are going crazy. I'm, like, excited about it. I'm, baby, did you see the flowers? They're, like, coming in, and there's these... Uh, and, and Because they look like everything else to me, because I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. So it all looks good to me. Well, then, Eva's, I invited Eva's mom to come over, because I started to grow cynical. Right? I'm like, wait a second. This is, I'm not this good, right? Something's going on. 
And so Eva's mom comes over and she's like, no, these are weeds. <laughs> You're an idiot. <laughs> and so they help me pull the weeds out. Now, now, this is what I mean. This is what I mean. Here's our key point. If we don't mortify our flesh, if we don't mortify our flesh, then we are preparing our hearts for compromise. I hadn't even known it, but my garden had been compromised. It had crept in. And so if I wasn't proactively seeking out weeds, it was only natural that weeds would take over, correct? So if we're not doing the work of mortifying our flesh, then we are preparing our hearts, just like that flower bed, for compromise. When you wake up and you do your devotional in the morning, a lot of times we're looking for inspiration. We're not looking to be cut, aren't we? We want something to give us energy for the day. Yeah, Jesus, like a Jesus Red Bull. But we aren't looking to let the Lord cut the flesh away that it wouldn't be encumbering us throughout the day, are we? We're not looking for the Word to do its perfect work of, of cutting our soul away from our flesh and putting that thing aside so that we're not encumbered by the weight of the world and so we can move forward in victory. We don't do that. You know why? Because it's painful to do that. That's not the thing we want to do when the sun's rising up and we've got our cup of coffee and we're like just enjoying the Word, taking notes. Right? We've lost the art of mortifying. And we've got to get back to that place because if we don't mortify the flesh, then it can't do the next thing. What does it say? What does it say? It tells us that the spirit has to do the work. The spirit does the work. And we can't live to the spirit if our garden is full of weeds. If we're so fixated on our flesh, there's no way that we can live in the power of the spirit. But yet the spirit does the work. You see, this is kind of a, a cyclical thing here. We invest in the spirit. The spirit does the work of rooting out the weeds. Okay? Then we can live to the Spirit. And it goes like this and this and this. right? So listen to me. The Spirit does the work. The Spirit is in us to kill with the intention of killing the things, the deeds of our flesh. Right? A work only God can do. Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 through 20 say, And I will give them one heart, and I will put a new heart, a new spirit within you. And I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. God's intention, what he desires, is to pluck out all the old stuff, to take the stony heart from out of you, okay, and put inside of you a heart that's sensitive to his will. That's what he wants to do. That's part of the job of the Spirit. Do you understand me? John Owens also says this, it would be easier to see without eyes than to mortify the flesh without the spirit. Isn't that an amazing statement? It would be easier to see without eyes than to mortify the deeds of the flesh without the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. This is why, this is why, listen to me, the law couldn't do it. This is why we needed the cheat code. The spirit is the cheat code inside you. It's the power to acknowledge slipping. I'm slipping. I'm, I'm, I'm getting tempted. To acknowledge it in the moment and to deal with it right there. The Holy Spirit does that for you. It exposes things in you. We need the Holy Spirit. So here's our sub point. Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit exposes and corrects sin. 2 Corinthians 3.17 now, uh, now the Lord is that spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Praise God. Yeah? yeah? 
But before we can get to that liberty, we need to do this work that's here in verse 18. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed in the same image from, uh, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so what's happening here? The Spirit is giving us the ability to look into the face of Jesus Christ. Okay? To look into the face of Jesus Christ and expose the flaws for what they are. It gives us the ability to see sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us. Has anybody ever dealt with conviction before? Has anybody ever come up against their sin and found out that there was something that, uh, like wicked inside them that needed to be dealt with? Okay, well, yeah. That's what the Spirit does. That's not a privilege of people who are lost. It's a privilege of those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit with the intention that we might be liberated So the Spirit does the work, and it does the work of exposing our sins and correcting them. See, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate makeover situation. I've never had a makeover. I don't even know what that means, to be honest with you. I think it has something to do with haircuts and makeup and things like that. A physical makeover. People have gotten makeovers. They have a show about it or something. I don't know. There's a show about everything. I just said that. There's probably shows about makeovers. Okay, now listen. This is the ultimate maker. The Holy Spirit has his work cut out for for him. There's a lot of work to do in our lives. Uh, We are are to be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the only way that's going to happen is if he shows us the things that aren't right. When I look in the mirror, I've got to be able to know that there's something hanging out of my nose. I've got to know that. Right? I've got to know if my hair is disheveled. Okay, wait, I shouldn't have said that because it always is. I don't mean that, but for some of you. Um, you care about that. You want to take care of that. Okay, but it, it, it's his job to show us things that are off, things that don't measure up. And, and then the Spirit begins to do the next thing in us. The Spirit begins to teach us righteousness. It begins to teach us righteousness. John 14, 26 says, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now notice here, the Spirit teaches us through recollection of Christ's words. The Spirit doesn't just teach us willy-nilly is the way the charismatics would explain it. Okay? People that have a wrong doctrine might think that the Spirit is teaching them things that don't exist in God's Word. No, no, no. What the Bible tells us is what the Spirit does is it brings us into recollection of the things that God has taught us from His Word. It brings those things into remembrance. Here, so here's a key point. If you are not familiar with truth, then you won't be able to tell the difference between a spiritual compromise or a spiritual consecration. You won't be able to tell the difference. You're not going to know the difference between sin in your life and, co- and consecration to God, devotion to God. Let me explain it this way. Some of you know that you've had sins for a long time that you didn't acknowledge as sin. Like you didn't even know it was wrong. Until the word of God showed you that it was wrong. Maybe there was something. Maybe there was something that you weren't doing that you knew that the Lord called you to do. Maybe it's something as simple as the tithe. It's there. The truth is there. 
Maybe you'd even heard the truth. But it wasn't until the Spirit revealed it to you and exposed it for what it was and taught you what was right that you have the strength and the ability to move forward. See, you didn't, you, we have a hard time sometimes knowing that certain things are sin because we've held on to them for so long and we put them in the closet away and we forget that they're in there. Right? You know what I'm talking about. It could be pride. It could be some sort of thing of pride in your life that you, 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 you forgot is there. Um, and I see this all the time. Um, you know, I'm going to call out Julie for a second. You know what? Julie is so sweet. Does anyone know how sweet Julie is? Julie is the type of person who is quick to feel convicted. She's very sensitive in this way. And I've seen, I've seen Julie in, in mid-statement say, hold on. I shouldn't say it that way. Let me say it this way. Not many people have the guts to do that. Not many people have the guts to do that. But let me say this the way Christ would say it. Let me back up for a second. That's powerful. And that only happens in you if you know and you're letting the Spirit reveal wickedness and teach you how to do the right thing. And that can only happen as we pour the Word of God into us. See, I needed Eva's mom to come and tell me what was weeds. I needed her to do that. See, the garden, I couldn't tell the difference between the weeds and the plants. I had lost my spiritual insight. I needed both God's word and his spirit. I needed both. If you don't have the word of God, then there is literally nothing for the spirit to teach you. What's it going to reveal? You don't know the Bible. You don't know the truth of God's word. What is the spirit going to show you? You've got to pour the word of God inside of you. And that leads us to the next point, the last one. The Holy Spirit empowers us in his word. He empowers us. He doesn't leave us just with a bunch of knowledge. He doesn't just leave us sitting there with a bunch of conviction. He takes those things, he actualizes God's will in our life, and he forces us forward in grace to move forward to do the right thing. He empowers us. Ephesians 6.17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's a sword. What do you do with the sword? You leave it sheathed? You leave it in your, you leave it in your belt thingy? I don't know. I've been to Comic-Con. I don't know what to do down with the fairy tale stuff. But I know that there's a sword, and I know that swords are supposed to be fought with. Are they not? And what's being done here in, in Ephesians chapter 6 is we're seeing a parallel between the sword of the Spirit and the Word of God. The Spirit wields the Word. It's the one that does the job. It does the fighting. The sword of the Spirit is the weapon by which we wage war. And it is the Spirit that wields it. The Spirit not only uses God's Word to change us, but it uses God's Word to empower us to change the world. We can go into the world as agents of change in the world and, and, and give them what's been given to us in terms of change in our own lives. That's what we need. That's what the world needs is the overpouring of what the Spirit is doing inside of us. Verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is what I'm going to leave you with. And the worship team can come up as we conclude. But I'm going to say this. Do not fear your weaknesses. Do not fear them. Hate your sin, but don't tear yourself down. And I'm not saying that to be like optimistic and cheesy and Joel Olsteiny, right? I'm not trying to be that way. I'm saying, listen to me, you're going to mess up. You're going to fail. God has not called you a failure. Don't live in it. 
He's perfecting you. He's perfecting you. He's working things out. Mind the things of the Spirit that God might make you perfect. Expose sin. Do not let it linger in the dark places. Bring it into the light and kill it. Kill it. You know, some of us have been telling ourselves that some of our sins aren't sins. You hear me? Some of us have been telling ourselves that some of the sins that we have in our life aren't really sins. That thing that you're holding on to, you know that you've been convicted about it, and you're telling yourself proactively that it's not a sin. You need to deal with that today before you leave and go eat lunch with your mom. You need to bring that thing out into the light. It's, it's, been in the, it's been in the cave, it's been in the closet, it's been on the shelf for a long time sitting there and you haven't done anything about it. And it's mildewy and it's gross and it's disgusting and it needs to be exposed. Some of us in our Bible study need to start practicing the, the, the work of confessing our sins. Some of you go into Bible study and you go in there real polished and ready to go and the problem is that you've been convicted of sin for a long time and you don't know what to do with it. And you need to, your brothers and sisters in Christ so they can pray fervently for you. So, I mean, some of us are seriously so proud that we don't even know. We've, we've forgotten the art of mortifying our sins. And so what we do is we hide them away. And we need to drag those suckers out into the light and root them out. Those weeds in my garden, if I didn't get the roots, they're coming back. We've got to root them out. What is the sin? Say what it is. Confess it amongst your peers and among the leaders in some cases, right? Not every sin needs to be dragged out to everyone. Sometimes you need to go up the chain. Come talk to me. Come to the person who you're discipling. But expose your sin, confess it, and deal with it that we might all participate in killing that deed. Amen. Let us help you. But listen to me, class. We need to not be perfect. Because you're not going to be. What we need is the pursuit of the Lord. And anything that inhibits pursuit of the Lord needs to be dealt with. Are you with me? Help me. Help me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we need you. We need your spirit to work in us. We need to feed your spirit uh, the word. (coughs) If your spirit doesn't have the word, uh, it can't recollect the words of Christ to us. There won't be any words that come out of our mouths. There won't be anything to lean into. There won't be anything to put our foundation upon that the Spirit might be built upon that foundation, that the work of the, of the ministry might be done in our lives. There's nothing we can do. We need your word. So God, use these people to pour the word into my life. Lord, use, use this church as a, as a vehicle to pour the words of truth into my life. And God, I pray that your spirit would do everything with that it could possibly do. Do not let me hold anything back from your spirit. Your spirit is, is a, is a, can devour every wicked thing inside of us. And God, I just pray that I would expose my sin to that. And that every one of us would recognize it's time to kill certain sins. It's time to give up weaknesses. Things that, that seem to trap us and, and inhibit us. And they, they preoccupy our mind. And we think about them in the quietness of our home and in our bed at night. God, help us to deal with those things and recognize that you've given us victory over them. Your spirit is so powerful. God, help us to acknowledge uh, acknowledge it for what it is. God, you're so good in the fact that you've given us yourself, your son, and your spirit. You're so good to us. We love the complexity of who you are as a triune God. The power of
of being one but three. Thank you for indwelling me. I need it, God. Thank you for grace. Thank you for saving me from my sins. In Jesus' name, amen.